0: All right, when when we get kind of worn down by politics, as as we are at this moment, (laughs) we often like to go to the world of science just just for some uplifting news that seems to be advancing the human race, at least our, our knowledge of the world. The sparse fossil record of the Denisovans, which are ancient human beings who lived in what is now Siberia, has gained one more specimen. They only had three. Now they have four. This comes in the form of a tiny, worn tooth that belonged to a child. The Denisovans are described as perhaps the most mysterious of all ancient hominins. They were discovered in 2010 when geneticists were sequencing DNA from ancient bones, assuming they belonged to Neanderthals. The DNA from a 50,000-year-old finger bone fragment turned out to be so different from Neanderthal gene sequences that the researchers concluded it must represent a second group. Later genetic studies suggested these distinct hominins split from the Neanderthals between 470 and 190,000 years ago. They were named the Denisovans after the Denisova cave in Siberia. This is pretty interesting stuff. We don't have time to go detail it at all, of course, because we're up against the break. But um, it is noted that Denisovan genes did spread across Asia. Chunks of their DNA are present in some people in both East Asia and in Oceania which strongly suggests the Denisovans inbred with modern humans who arrived later. We will continue to follow this story. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Evert. This is Radio Parallax. Uh-huh. We are back. We mentioned a couple weeks ago um, that on Netflix, I I presume and elsewhere as well, um, you can view the documentary Get Me Roger Stone. We have talked about Roger Stone over the years because, because of what a political fixer he turns out to be. I think he describes himself as a political hitman, which is pretty apt. At any rate, at a little gathering of Republicans down in Southern California last week, Roger Stone was going to make an appearance. We asked one of our correspondents down there to see if he could get a soundbite from him, and he succeeded. Now, to put this in context, there was a vote in the Senate last week about this effort to repeal Obamacare. A lot of people in, uh, in the government and elsewhere are really concerned about Obamacare because it has the word Obama in the name. Our understanding on this program was when it was first proposed, it was essentially the same as the Romney plan, the way of delivering health care via private insurance that Mitt Romney pioneered when he was the governor of Massachusetts, at that time highly regarded by Republicans. Well, somewhere along the way, this all got screwed up, and there's an effort to change this in the Senate and the House, and it's going around and around. I don't need to tell you, dear listener, you've unfortunately been beleaguered by the headlines as well. But at any rate, it came down to a vote and evidently a defection of a couple of female Republican senators got it down to where there was one tie-breaking vote. My understanding is that John McCain arranged it so that he would cast the final vote and he voted against, leaving the so-called reform in a state of chaos. Now, there evidently is no love lost between Donald J. Trump and John McCain, During the campaign, Trump, of course, said that McCain was not a hero because he got captured and he liked guys that didn't get captured. Some pointed out that it would be very difficult for Trump to get captured since he kept getting deferments. (laughs) But at any rate, in the wake of John McCain revealing that he actually has brain cancer, he evidently left his hospital bed to return to Washington to cast that, well, I guess it has to be described as a screw-you vote against Trump's reforms. After that... Roger Stone referred to John McCain as a piece of dung, although he used a different word. And he had further bad things to say about John McCain, so we sent uh, Bruce Bronstein down to see if he could get a soundbite, as mentioned a minute ago, and uh, well, without further ado, let's just go to it.
1: My, one of my editors asked me to ask you this question. He wanted to know, you know, you said, like, McCain was a piece of that, and yeah. He wanted me to ask you about that. My, and I, my, my question is, is it possible that McCain actually did him a big favor because now they're going to have to redo it and make something much better? Well, my, my comment was uh, broader than that. McCain, we now know, is deeply involved in the trafficking of a phony dossier that the FBI paid $50,000 for brought across the country. It's treason. Uh, he said that Barack Obama was a better president than Donald Trump. He said that the Russian collusion was worse than Watergate. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that the brain tumor was causing his erratic, unbalanced, red-faced uh, outbursts, his tirades. The man's not well. I wish him well. I, I hope he gets a speedy recovery, but he's not what you've been told he is. He's a fraud. Uh, I think he's a disgrace. But do you think it actually might have the benefit of making the health care bill a little bit more balanced? And instead I didn't of- love this bill but he wasn't trying to do Trump a favor, even if it was inadvertent. He's a disgrace. I have a long, no, long, long, long piece coming on him. His corruption, the million dollars he took from the Saudis, this all has to be exposed. Don't tell us you have nothing to do with McCain Institute. Everybody running the place came off, you're it. The American people aren't stupid. John McCain took a payoff from the Saudis. It's disgraceful. Does that explain why he was opposed to the release of, congressional uh, inquiry into Saudi involvement in 9-11? Is there a cause effect there? Looks like it to me. All right. Thank you very much, Roger. Thank you.
0: Now, from what we can understand from this soundbite, Roger Stone's got more to say about John McCain. He's going to write about how treasonous he is, how he's colluding with the Russians, how uh, he apparently was conspiring to cover up matters in 9-11. I don't know. We don't know that Roger Stone is going to allege that John McCain was, in fact, on the grassy knoll with a rifle back in 1963, but it is all heading in that direction, isn't it? We'd like to reiterate that at one point we were offered Mr. Stone as a guest on this program to talk about his book on the Kennedy assassination, in which he tries to pin the whole affair on Lyndon Baines Johnson. This is based upon comments supposedly made to Roger Stone by Richard M. Nixon. Things along the line of the fact that Nixon supposedly told Stone at one point that, yeah, sure, I wanted to be president, but not enough to kill for it. Anyway, this is not the day to get into that. But like you, dear listener, we'll have to see what else comes out of the remarkable mind of of Roger Stone. As you will see if you check out the Netflix documentary, there's probably no human being out there more responsible for the Trump presidency than Mr. Stone. He was urging Donald Trump to run for president in 1988 and kept working on him year after year till he did, more than once. And, of course, the last time he did, he met with some success. Anyway, enough of that. It is curious in this age of weird politics that um, an alternative version of reality is uh, operating on a parallel track. We're referring in this case to Veep, the wonderful program on HBO, which is all about presidential and vice-presidential politics. Julia Louis-Dreyfus does a fantastic job. Her supporting guest does a fantastic job. And above all else, her writers do a fantastic job. Something that is not doing necessarily a fantastic job, and we would hasten to note, as you might expect, would involve the application of artificial intelligence to Poetry. We've been sitting on a piece from New Scientist magazine for the past several weeks, article by Matt Reynolds in the News and Technology section, which starts out asking, can a machine incapable of feeling emotion write poetry that stirs the soul? Mr. Reynolds notes that a neural network trained on the thousands of lines of poetry has tried its hand at penning its own rhymes. Its best efforts even fool readers into thinking they're reading the output of a human mind. The article quotes Jack Hopkins, who developed this AI system while at the University of Cambridge, as saying, the poetic bot is fully tunable. It can be programmed to write on a particular rhythm or on specific themes. Set the theme to, quote, desolation, quote, unquote, for example, and the angst-ridden AI comes up with the following. The frozen waters that are dead are now black as the rain to freeze a boundless sky, and frozen ode of our terrors with the grisly lady shall be free to cry. Now, we freely confess here at Radio Parallax that we are completely incapable of judging poetry. Well, we're completely incapable of fairly judging poetry. We leave that. To Dr. Andy Jones and his excellent program, Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour, heard on KDVS every Wednesday at five o'clock. But we nevertheless are willing to go out on a limb and say that we think that little bit of poetry produced by artificial intelligence, well, stinks. How's that? Stinks. The piece by Matt Reynolds notes that the AI can be endlessly tweaked to produce different flavors of poetry. It could write about Brexit in the style of a Greek, Greek epic or write snippets of Romeo and Juliet while mimicking Eminem. <laughs> is, is, is there a need for this? Is, are, are people crying out for someone to rewrite snippets of Romeo and Juliet while mimicking Eminem? We, we don't think so. The piece goes on to note that flesh-and-blood poet Rishi Dastadar suspects that the AI is all surface and no subtext. Real poems explore ideas that might not be immediately apparent in the text. But AI doesn't deal in ideas. It just puts forth one word after the other. And although it might be short on original thought, the AI poet did have plenty of examples to draw inspiration from. It was trained on over 7 million words of 20th century English poetry. It notes that, unlike most human poets, the neural network doesn't think in words. Rather, to approximate poetic idiosyncrasies, like archaic sparing and whimsical punctuation, it learned to write its stanzas one letter at a time. Anyway, we're in our heads on this. The article concludes by noting that, uh, lack of creativity aside, the neural network still managed to fool some people. Jack Hopkins asked 70 people to guess who'd written a fragment of poetry, a computer or a living, breathing poet. And it turned out that the most human poem was actually written by an AI. You know, we do actually have a slight bit of curiosity. We wonder what AI would come come up with if you start out with the phrase, there once was a man from Nantucket. And, uh, you know... <sighs> It's a logical jump here to go from the failings of AI to the failings of high-tech industries. So so let's make that jump and refer to the briefing section of the current issue of The Week magazine. We rely upon The Week, week after week, and its briefing sections are frequently excellent. We think it's worth at least a five-minute digression into the current one, which is about the new monopolies. The sub-headline is the inexorable growth of Google, Facebook, and Amazon have raised fears that these giants are becoming too powerful. To quote from the briefing questions, the first is how dominant are these firms? The answer is as dominant as Standard Oil, Carnegie Steel, and American Tobacco War at the end of the 19th century. Google has an 88% market share in search advertising in the U.S., Facebook and its major subsidiaries, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Messenger, account for 77% of mobile social media traffic. Almost one of every $2 in online retail sales goes through Amazon. Flush with revenues of tens of billions of dollars, each company has heavily expanded into other industries. Google dominates video through YouTube, mapping, and personal email. Facebook is building consumer drones and virtual reality sets. Amazon recently bought an upscale grocery chain, Whole Foods, for $13.4 billion. Digital enthusiasts once predicted that the internet would democratize business and industry. Instead, it's enabled a handful of firms to have such dominant market shares that it's almost impossible to compete with them. In answer to the question, what's wrong with monopolies? The briefing replies, When companies control a market, they tend to use their power to eliminate competition, often to the detriment of consumers. They can force suppliers to lower their prices, cutting their profits, and can bankrupt their rivals by undercutting them, or simply buy them out. Massive companies can also use economies of scale to eliminate jobs, particularly in the digital era where much work can be automated. All this can result in reduced consumer choice, depressed wages, and a concentration of wealth in the hands of fewer people in fewer locations. And in answer to the follow-up questioning, is that actually happening? The short answer is yes. By way of elaboration, they note that Amazon accounts for 52% of all U.S. book sales, 43% of all online commerce and 45% of the fast-growing cloud computing market. The Seattle-based company has put most brick-and-mortar bookstores out of business, and last year had online sales six times higher than those of Walmart, Target, Best Buy, Nordstrom, Home Depot, Macy's, Kohl's, and Costco combined. Combined. The self-proclaimed everything store has absorbed many of its competitors, buying the largest online shoe retailer, Zeppos, the most popular live streaming video platform, Twitch, and the market leader in baby products, Diapers.com. When the latter initially refused to sell, Amazon simply slashed its prices for its own baby products until Diapers.com capitulated. Anyway, we're not going to read this piece in its entirety, but would note that it does describe how tech giants have produced plenty of losers, like the newspaper industry. Facebook and Google control more than 70% of the $73 billion in digital advertising in the U.S. Most of those dollars used to go to media companies. Between 2006 and 2016, U.S. newspaper advertising revenue plummeted from $50 billion to $18 billion. And the number of jobs in the industry has been cut by more than half, from 411,000 in 2001 to 174,000 in 2016. Facebook and Google eat up most of the online ad dollars. Another example is how department stores and malls are being affected. Hundreds of major retail stores have shut their doors because of the shift to online shopping, and dozens of malls have gone dark or are half empty. That, in turn, has damaged the vitality of downtowns and surrounding communities. Howard Davidovitz, an investment banker and consultant to the retail industry, said the communities wither away and they never come back. In response to the final question of is there any pushback, it's noted that in the U.S., not much. The U.S. government generally has used a light hand in regulating tech companies so as not to stifle innovation and growth in what is now our fastest growing industry. Facebook, Google, and Amazon argue that they're not true monopolies because their much smaller competitors are only a click away. Well, this is a problem, and something needs to be done about it. I know I'm going to start by considering not ordering through Amazon if alternatives are available in the future. What was the thing I just got on Facebook? And it might be time just to get off of Facebook. Yes, it's useful. Yes, it's convenient. Yes, it's a great way to to talk to people uh, online. But the advertising that seems to be intruding on it and the fake news is disturbing. Facebook has promised to rein in uh, the intrusion of fake news. But just a couple of days ago, I got a long piece explaining why Al Gore's sequel to An Inconvenient Truth, named An Inconvenient Sequel, is just full of propaganda complete with 200 comments by people describing Al Gore as Satan incarnate. And no, I don't know how this fake news got on my my Facebook site, but it's a disturbing finding. And you know, we do need to lighten this show up somehow. Uh, (laughs) Just, we're getting to such heavy stuff. Uh, Luckily, we have our archives. And in fact, I have here in my hand a copy of Resident and Staff Physician, something I had back when I was a medical resident publication. It was in the January 1986 issue, and the article was titled, The Lighter Side of the Law. It was written by a Robert Pelton from Mount Juliet, Tennessee, and outlined some of the things that are against the law in this country, in most cases related to medicine, and and, and these are worth going going through. I don't know, 31 years later, how many of these are still in the books, but my guess is all of them Now, let's start out with one we like. Apparently, the good people of Clayville, Rhode Island, passed legislation that gave physicians the legal right to force an unclean patient to return home and, if necessary, take a bath. They evidently felt in Clayville, Rhode Island, the doctor doesn't have to examine any patient who is not freshly bathed. And, you know, after three decades in medicine, I could embellish that particular item with numerous examples but I definitely choose not to. Now, if you live in Erie, Pennsylvania, you should keep in mind that it is illegal for a doctor or registered nurse to allow a patient to fall asleep while sitting in the waiting room. And at least as of 1983, there was still a law on the books in Connecticut. Well, it might create a problem for people who want to enjoy a plug of tobacco now and again. The law still on the books there prohibited people from chewing tobacco in public without the written permission of a physician. And we're not sure where Perrysburg, Ohio is. We do know that if you are there, it's illegal for two people to take an alcoholic drink from the same bottle unless one of the individuals, again, has written permission from a licensed physician. Now, if you like to play checkers, you might want to note that, um, well, especially if you're a doctor. Or at least, if you're a doctor in Blue Earth, Minnesota, that physicians there are not allowed to play checkers during office hours, even if there are no patients waiting to be examined or seen. We're not sure what prompted the people of Capital J A Y Capital E M Wyoming from passing this law, but in that community, no wedding ceremony can be held during working hours within 500 feet of a doctor's office. And yes, we're as confused as you are by that one. Um, Attention, physicians living in Moorfield, Nebraska, you will need to be careful about eating garlic and onions. You're not allowed to do either between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. on a workday. And finally, if you live in Kewaskum, Wisconsin, there's a similar piece of legislation, Uh, in this case involving beer. No physician is allowed to drink beer after 7 a.m. and before 7 p.m. Should he do so and his breath is said to be offensive to prospective patients, that doctor can be jailed overnight as well as fined. Why don't we throw out a quote and a quip for today's show? I think today's show needs one. I think we've used them both before, but they're both so good that they're worth using again. The first comes from economist John Kenneth Galbraith who once said the only function of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. And let's go with cartoonist Bill Watterson, who once said, the surest sign that intelligent life exists elsewhere in the universe is that it has never tried to contact us. All right, one item we're looking forward to seeing resolved in the next few months to maybe a year or two is the question of whether out beyond Neptune, there is a genuine ninth planet and possibly genuine tenth planet. We here at Radio Parallax accept the demotion of Pluto to being one of the Kuiper Belt objects, but we remain intrigued by the scientists down at Caltech and elsewhere who have done the math on the orbits of these icy bodies out beyond Neptune to determine that there's some evidence for a ninth genuine planet, meaning that it's got 10 times the mass of Earth orbiting 700 astronomical units away from the Sun. Now, our distance from planet Earth to the Sun is one, obviously, astronomical unit, and Neptune is about 30 times that, which you know, was a good spot to consider the end of the solar system, except if there's something 10 times the size of the Earth, 700 AU out, well, that's a game changer. They're looking for it. It might be there. We'll know in the next year or two. But here's where it gets really weird. Doing the math on some of these other Kuiper Belt objects, they've concluded that, well, based on the math, there may be a 10th planet. This one would be smaller than the Earth. In fact, it would be about the size of the planet Mars. According to some of the math that's been done, this Mars-like object would be able to account for some of the odd orbits which have been observed. This, too, should be resolved in the next couple of years. As you may or may not know, dear listener, I hope you do know, having listened to this program over the years, The planet Neptune was actually discovered similarly through the use of pen and paper. A couple of very intelligent mathematicians, one English and one French, in the 1840s or so, took a look at the orbit of Uranus and concluded something was amiss. Now, luckily for them, it turned out that Uranus at that point in its orbit had just lapped its sister planet, Neptune. Before it got to Neptune... There was a little bit of a tug accelerating it towards it, and once it passed Neptune, there was a little bit of a a gravitational tug holding it back. These couple of pretty smart guys were able to then calculate where, if you pointed a telescope, you should find a missing planet, and by God, it was right where they said it was. So um, it's pretty clear that such methods do work. And by the way, one of the guys that's done the work on this, Mike Brown of Caltech, is a guy we'd love to have on this program in the future, and and perhaps we shall. He was the author of the book, How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. All right, let's close out today's program with a couple of statistics, statistical items. Um, Starting with this one, apparently just 20 United States counties are responsible for roughly half of the new businesses created in the U.S. since the recession. 20 counties represents just 0.64% of the 3,100 counties in the U.S.A. That's according to 538.com. Here's some depressing news from Bloomberg.com. Despite eating an average of 35 pounds of cheese each year, Americans have not been able to dent our historic dairy glut. Reportedly, dairy farmers literally poured nearly 50 million gallons of unsold milk into the ground last year amid the lowest milk prices since the recession. That seems just wrong on so many levels. On the other hand, our understanding is that thanks to price supports, uh, the dairy industry is encouraged to produce an excess of milk. Final item, according to the Wall Street Journal, Americans are expected to spend a record $316 billion on home improvements this year, up from $296 billion last year. Many homeowners are electing to stay put and remodel rather than trade up because the inventory of affordable homes is so small. Anyway, that about does it for today's program. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, All right, thanks to Bruce Bronstein for his contribution of Roger Stone, and to Richard for clarifying that phone call from the Boy Scouts of America to President Trump, or lack of. We'll see you next week at the same time.